I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. David Weitzenhofer on the show today of AI Selections. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. It's a beautiful Saturday day. So I got to tell you, you're one of the people I've known uh, longest in the business because when I was uh, in Boston, I went to Cambridge, actually, which is on the other side of the river, ordered up a half bottle of Chateau Gloria at, upstairs at the Pudding, and you were the sommelier. And, uh, you know, uh, we've not been hanging out every day since then, but I see you from time to time and we both ended up moving to New York, but I, I thought it'd be fun to have you on the show. Kind of, uh, you're one of the people I've known, as I say, you're one of the longest relationships I've had in, in this, in the wine business. And it's kind of funny how things work out. We're, we're both still hanging around. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are, you know, <laughs> Hey, so you started in Boston at Les Eagle, Matt, you were working as a waiter. Yeah. That was my first sort of Boston gig. I, um, did a little bit of wine buying in Seattle before, um, but I had essentially three jobs that happened all at the same time. And Le Zygamot was the, the first of three um, during that first year in Boston that I was there. And what was that like? Because Lorenzo, who was there doing the list, he was kind of a, a well-known guy. Yeah, Lorenzo Savona, um, you know, I didn't really know um, a lot about Lorenzo per se. I didn't know about Boston. I, I just moved from Seattle and um, I knew that Le Zygamot was a great wine destination, but I didn't know Lorenzo at all. And... Um, so I'm, I'm waiting tables. I'm not doing wine. And uh, Lorenzo is, um, you know, very affable and approachable and, um, and and magnetic. People want to talk with him. Um, and so it was he was great for me, you know, with someone that I felt like as, as a, you know, 20-something that I could go to and say, hey, I want to learn about wine. And it didn't happen right away, but, you know, eventually he started folding me into wine conversations after my shift. And uh, really, really terrific guy, I feel like, that... Even though it was a short period of time that we worked together, I felt like he made a very big imprint on me in that short time. So was it kind of the imprint of just how to approach tables? Because it seemed like your style was always a little more laid back. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, it's, I think the style is laid back. And then Lorenzo certainly was a very laid back style. And he had sort of a, an infectious laugh, very infectious laugh. And um, he was, yeah, I mean, he was, it was just wine. But that's all it yeah. was, you know, it was, you know. It can be incredibly complex. He had really expensive bottles on the on the wine list, but it was it was just wine. And he taught classes, and he wanted to share it with people. And my whole experience with wine, um, both in Seattle and kind of at Zigmats, and and really throughout, has been you know I found people who want to share wine mm -hmm. and and teach other people, and you know that's something that's really special about wine. I think it's how you end up working in that field is. Um, and I think a lot of us that are involved in wine um, also want to share. Um, not just you know what makes a particular wine tastes like what it tastes like, um, but the experience. You know, you, you could have the best bottle of wine that you've ever had, and if you have it by yourself, it's not the same thing as if you have it with two or three friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, one, you get more drunk, and then two. Uh, <laughs> well, by yourself, yeah, yeah which, right. which could be a plus. Yeah. So, I mean, you were working there as a waiter, hanging out with Lorenzo, drinking a little wine at the at the staff tastings, and then you decided to go out to upstairs at the pudding, or at that time, yeah, it was upstairs at the pudding at that time. Now it's well, upstairs at the square. So, what happened was, um, I was, you know, I, I didn't 
you know, waiting tables, I wasn't really making a great living and it wasn't a wine gig. So my next job actually was at a place called Harvard Provision oh, in okay. retail. Um, and then just around the corner was Upstairs of the Pudding and that happened shortly after. And I got a job as an assistant sommelier there. And I hated all three jobs for different reasons. Um, you know, there were opportunities to learn, but um, there were, you know, bad things about each of those jobs I really sure. didn't like. Yeah. So, um, and then eventually... Um, the guy who was at the time uh, the wine director at Upstairs of the Pudding, at some point he walked out. I mean, it was fireworks and, you know, restaurant drama. And he walked out, I think, like December 17th or something. And they uh, they just need someone to take over. Yeah, because it's busy time, holiday season. Yeah. And that was a busy restaurant, as I recall, at that time. It was really... Yeah, their their goal had always been to put as many people in that restaurant at any given night as possible. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I never worked. Uh, I, I knew them, but not not well at the D-Bowl. It was, um, I mean, it was a, I can't remember how long it had been in business when I was there. I mean, I think they were probably going on 20 years. I mean, it was a fairly historic place. And then, you know, the the lease changed through the university and they were closed down for a while, but have reopened up since. But yeah, they, um, yeah, it was about, you know, energy and to some degree chaos um, there, but it was, they did a good job. They somehow pulled it off every night. I, I remember being almost kind of, this is strange, but as a younger person, I was in college at that time, it kind of had a magical feel to it. Like you're going to a fantasy land. I mean, everything was pink and there was gold chairs and it, it felt like it, it kind of carried through. I mean, I, I still remember it as kind of a special room. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's very much what Deborah, who's one of the owners, was going for, um, this sort of fantasy kind of place. And, and she was, I mean, she was, the, the, whole, the whole thing was, you know, I don't know how much of uh, restaurant background the two of them had. Deborah was a chef, but, you know, in terms of running day-to-day -day operations, I don't know if that was the first one. It just stuck for so long, but it was, um, it was, a, really, it was a really interesting place. And then I, Lorenzo ended up there, who I worked for initially. Oh, okay. Some years after I was there, he ended up as the wine director there. So a lot of people have passed through Upstairs at the Pudding, or what's called Upstairs on the Square now. And at the time, you were doing a lot of work with Half Bottles, which was uh, kind of different for that, that era. Yeah, um, I... You know, I had different phases. Like at every restaurant I've been at, there have been times where I've been in an Alsatian phase or, you know, this phase or that. But I, I really like the idea of a half bottle. Um, you know, I like the idea that if I could get um, couples who might only have a glass each to go ahead and have a, a bottle and enjoy the experience, that would be something special. As I um, spent more time in the industry, um, I became more and more tolerant of alcohol. So, you know, a bottle with my girlfriend and I wasn't enough, so, but a bottle and a half was perfect. So, um, yeah, so I like the idea of half bottles. I thought it was a, something different we could add to the list. And eventually you ended up going and working with the Lockover uh, revamp with Lydia Shire and Jackie Robert. Yeah, so in the time that um, Upstairs of the Pudding closed, um, I went over and we, we closed down Biba and opened up Lockover. Which was a huge restaurant in Boston for a number of years, yeah. like in terms of influence and people coming through. Yeah, yeah, and um, and it was a very different experience because of her business partner um, had ran the restaurant very much like a business. Um, there were very sort of set rules. It was just a sort of night and day experience going from upstairs of the pudding to Lockover. Just in that, um, not not in terms of the quality of the output or or even necessarily the the experience of eating there, but in terms of the approach that the two owners had. Um, yeah, and so we did. A relatively similar list at Lockover. It was, you know, French, um, American driven. And Jackie Robert had been uh, a, a known chef in that area from Maison Robert for a number of years, which was classic French. And then he went and worked in what would be a classic American room, but with uh, kind of a, a his take on, on some of those classic uh, items. And what was it like working with him? Jackie was great. Jackie was, um, he was also very encouraging because he, you know, I'm still you know, fairly young in the business at this point. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm trying to think of maybe just 30, uh, maybe maybe not even 30 yet, I guess. And, um, you know, he he had run his own restaurant and he liked wine. And it was, he was somebody, you know, I'm taking over this program and there are certain expectations, but he was somebody that, like Lorenzo, was happy to share his experience. And um, it was easy for me to go into the kitchen and talk to him about wines with certain dishes and, and talk to him about what it is that he wanted to do. He was, he was very, very approachable as well. And not, not all chefs are. It's, uh, that's not always easy to do. 
I remember going to the Maison Robert and, and drinking uh, Bordeaux there and, and finding it to be pretty laid back, even though the room was somewhat formal and the, the cuisine was somewhat formal. I never made it to Maison Robert. So my only experience with Jackie was in the kitchen. And he was, I mean, he was one of the first people that really helped me sort of explore, you know, having calves brains and anything I wanted. I mean, he would, he would, if I asked him to make me a dish and it was a classic French dish, this guy was ready to do it for me. I mean, really terrific guy. So what was the transition into uh, New York, working in New York? Um, well, my, my wife had finished, at the time she was, we weren't married yet, but she'd finished uh, grad school and it was sort of between New York and Boston. We weren't especially attached to Boston, so we moved to New York and, you know, so the, the restaurants that you mentioned were, were pretty good restaurants and at the time it was kind of the height of Lockover's sort of reopening and uh, so I moved here and I started sending out, actually I started sending out resumes before I moved here. Um, I had Dan Perlman, who was working at uh, AZ at the time, was in charge of finding a wine person for a new restaurant they're going to open up on 57th called Pazzo. Um, oh, okay, okay. I think BLT Steak is there now. Um, and so I came down, I interviewed for that on a hot, hot July day. Um, but for the most part, I'm sending out resumes and I'm getting nowhere. And um, so it's it's August, we move here. And I spend about six weeks sending out resumes, a few interviews here and there, but I'm, nothing's really turning up. And I know a few people, you know, there's a few people I have friends that have either moved from Boston or we've met on wine trips or whatever. And they're, you know, giving me as much intel as they can about possibilities. Um, I, I hear a rumor, um, a guy named Lee Fleming, who used to be the wine director at Say Yang. See, now that's when you start to feel old is when your friends aren't in the wine business anymore and the restaurant you're talking about is not in existence anymore, but um, great Chinese place in Midtown. I think and Roger de Gorn went through there at 1.2. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, yeah, so Lee Fleming tells me that he had heard a rumor that the wine director, uh, Richard Lufthick, down cook shop now, um, was going to be leaving. And so I, you know, I try calling him, but I can't reach him. And so I just send a resume and hope for the best. And um, I kind of give up on the restaurants. I, you know, I need to do something. So I, I take a job with um, Rob Mackin, who has a distributing company called Ours and Wines. Sure. Good portfolio. I, I like it very much. Yeah. Um, and I worked for him for about two weeks and um, was nothing to do with, with Rob or his company. But when Felidia called, it just seemed like the, a, a tremendous opportunity. And so, um, yeah, in October of 02, took that job. And you were there for like four four years, right? Yep, just about four years. And what was that experience working with Lydia uh, Bastianich, who was the owner of Lydia? Um, it was it was great. I mean, it's there was a lot that I learned there. There's a lot I learned from her. Um, I think there's also, you know, it was the first job where I really felt like um, someone gave me my title and for the most part, let me do what it was that I was supposed to do. I felt very empowered in that position. Um, and then, you know, it, it came with, that restaurant came with its own sort of um, baggage. You know, you have three restaurants that I've worked at, you know, upstairs the Pudding, Lockover, and now Felidia, that were all older restaurants. Um, all of them came with staff that, that had been there for 10, 15, 20 years in some cases. Um, so, you know, there was always this kind of, uh, navigating, you know, what the ins and outs and politics of, of that restaurant were, but in general, it was, uh, it was a very important experience, I think for me overall. Was that kind of your introduction to Italian wine? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I had, I had Italian wine on all my wine lists, um, but it tended to be pretty mainstream. I would say both, both mainstream in terms of category, like Chianti or Barolo, and then also probably fairly mainstream in terms of the types of producers, things that, you know, are produced on higher quantity levels, um, are imported by big importers. That, that had been my experience prior. When I got the list, and I have to say that, that the list I inherited from Richard Luftig is hands down the best list I'd ever inherited. I mean, it was what he had put together was, was amazing. Um, but to deal with the kinds of riddles that he had on that list, um, the depth of Barolo and Barbaresco that existed when I got there, um, the the amount of wine that was just in in storage um, and and was back vintages of Italian stuff that I would have never had the chance to taste. Um, yeah, that to that degree was certainly my introduction to Italian wine. And you'd worked with name chef before uh, in your in your career, but this seems like the first time that you worked with like a name chef who had big presence in cookbooks, big presence in TV. Uh, what was that What was that experience like? I mean, how what was that scale like? Huh. Um, I don't know that, you know, my day-to-day -day, uh, work, 
was mostly with Fortunato Nicotra, who's who's been the executive chef since 1990. Um, in terms of the relationship with Lydia, I think part of I think what I take away, I, I think she just had a sense of she got where she is. She got to be a big name chef because she has an amazing drive. Um, there, when you want to get something done, you just figure out how to get it done. I think more than anything that I learned while I was there was was that from her. So my interaction with a big name chef, I think that's that was the thing. I mean, I saw her frequently. That was that's you know not just her flagship restaurant. That's where her office is. And so if she was in New York, you know she was in her office. And to get to her office, the one office she had to go through was mine. So I saw her pretty regularly. Um, I, I just think that the the thing that I take away from it was there was no kind of cutting corners. That's not how she got where she got to be. She she just doesn't do that. And when you need to make something happen, if you have to will it to happen, you will it to happen. And that's that's that was kind of the difference working with someone of her caliber versus, you know, let's see if we get through tonight's service. Do do you think that's kind of a a, a truism for strong New York restaurant tours in general? Um. You know, I, I don't have too much experience with a lot of other New York restaurants. Yeah. I, th I think that there's, like a lot of things in New York, the bar to success is much higher. Um, I think that um, the, the demands from the public are, are very high in New York. They they expect really high quality. Um, so I think that I think you have to have drive and, and desire to, to succeed at that level. You also, and I don't know if this is true for, you know, I don't know if Lydia felt the same way. I know that early on in New York, I felt, you know, there was no, no one told me what my hours were going to be at Felidia. Got it. But there's always this sense that if you're not willing to work hard enough, there's, there's somebody that wants your job. And I think that's probably true of a lot of industries in New York. Um, so I, I don't know if I, I, I don't know what the standards are and for other restaurants, if there's that drive and that will, or if that's what's needed in New York. But, but I do think New York is not an easy place to succeed, but has all of the right ingredients to succeed. If you, you know, really push yourself to. And your your role there at the restaurant kind of kept expanding uh, to the point where you started taking clients on trips uh, under the under the umbrella purview of, of Flidia, like good clients to the restaurant. You would take them to Tuscany or Piemonte. And what was it like getting over there for those trips? Well, again, I think it was it was sort of empowering. I think I think that's something very smart that that uh, I think Joe does it with his people as well. And Lydia was was, you know, it's you know, getting raises is nice, but also getting um, new responsibilities that are fun responsibilities is a really good way to keep employees happy. Um, but it was, you know, spending time, you know, you're, you're doing these wine lists and you're sort of becoming better and better at Italian wine, doing them. Um, taking customers with you as sort of an expert on an area or introducing them and sharing your relationship with a wine producer, with your customers um, is, you know, it, not only feels really good, but kind of goes back to that thing of, of sharing, right? You know, we, so I've, I've shared with you as a customer, you know, here's why I think Felsina is a really important winery. Um, and they get it and they're really interested. And if only they could go and actually see what I've seen. And then all of a sudden you can share that experience too. It's, it's pretty cool. And eventually you decided, hey, I'd like to spend some more time here. And you you left the restaurant and with the aim of, of doing Harvest in Piemonte and, and doing a little writing. And, and how long were you over there? I was there, I arrived uh, in August, and I left at the end of November, and then I was, this is 06, and then I was back for about a month around Easter in 07, and then I was there in the summer again in 07, and then I was back August and September of 07. So it was, the way it worked out, it was probably, I don't know what it works out if you count it, but it was probably seven, seven months total, or so maybe a little bit less. And was that the first time you'd, you'd seen the harvest cycle in, in a classic wine region like that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd visited wine regions during harvest, but it was, you know, you're in and out, you're, you know, you're seeing people for a couple of days, they're, they're really busy and, um, but not spent a whole harvest anywhere before. And what, what did you, did your relationship with wine kind of deepen as a result of seeing that kind of origin process? Um, no, I don't think so. No, you kind of had it already, but you just kind of broaden the scope a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think there's probably a, a deeper understanding of, you know, some of the, the less glamorous parts of wine making, you know, hooking up, you know, hoses and clamps and um, getting up early in the morning to do it. And, you know, you get a sense that everyone's really tired at the end of harvest. But you don't really realize how, like, you don't realize that you're so tired you, you can't 
eat dinner when you get home sometimes. And, um, yeah, so you understand a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I think, I think in general, I think my, my understanding of, of the wines and what was coming from them, I think was, was somewhat established. It was solid already. Yeah. So you get back into the New York market and how did, what happened next? Um, well, I get back and, and I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to just try and keep writing. I don't really know how to do that. I think, you know, I've talked, I, I don't, I have to work really hard to write. It's, I can do it and I can turn out something that's good, but it's, it's a lot of work for me. Whereas there's some people that are great writers and, and they do it more effortlessly, I think. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And, and there's some wineries that I know of that haven't been imported. Um, some of them we used to bring in, you know, for Felidia through various means. And I think, well, I'll, I'll become a broker. You know, I, I don't have money to start my, my own business. So if I can just broker between the distributor and, and myself and the winery, then, then I can make a living like that. And in order, because the amount of money you make as a broker really isn't that great, um, you need a lot of you need a lot of wines or, or one really big brand to make any money. And so it became clear that, you know, I wasn't gonna be able to just be a broker. I was gonna have to do something to to either take on another job or I was gonna have to find a way to get more money out of it. And that became being a distributor and importer. And what what would it, I mean, originally it seemed like the size of your company was fairly small. And now uh, several years later, it's grown, uh, you know, 10 or 20 fold. Uh, what were those early days like? <laughs> Um, well, I mean, the company started, I mean, very, very mom and pop. So, um, you know, I have a, a friend that, that loaned me a small amount of money. We ordered wine from uh, a really small producer in Friuli and uh, we sold it. And then we ordered more wine from them and we sold it again. And then we found a second winery. And um, you're right. I mean, the company's bigger now. To me, it still feels very much like not not always because you step back and you see it sometimes, but I, I still feel like I'm kind of in the the trenches of okay, here's a winery, we've got to sell it and then pay for it and then order some more wine, and and that's how how it started. I mean, you know, in the first year, you know, I, I don't think we had more than five wineries, maybe six. You know, for the first six months, we had four. Um, and of those first four, we only had you know I I. I I chose wines by what I liked. I was very much like a sommelier. You know, I didn't worry about the the economics of it. I mean, we're not we weren't smart business people. You know, not not only did we not have anything we could sell by, we had one wine we could sell by the glass in those first six months, um, and we started with stuff like Fosco and Friulano and Rosso Conero, and not things like Chianti and Gavi and Amarone, things that people actually wanted and we could sell. Um, I, I don't know that that was a very good business plan. Um, so, I mean, that's what, that's what it was like in the first days was, you know, I was out on the streets and knocking on doors and, you know, trying to get people to see me. And I have friends because I'd been in the wine business and sommeliers would see me, but, you know, it was me calling them. No one was calling me. Because they didn't have, you didn't have at those times the kind of like, I need to have it items that a sommelier is looking for. It was more like, hey, these are things that really appeal to me. Maybe they'll appeal to you. But it wasn't like they were being built up by scores or something like that. Yeah, no, there was nothing that we had that you needed to have. And and what have been some of the milestones along the way of growing the company? Because when I went to the tasting recently, it was a lot of wine in that room, you know, a lot of good wine. Thanks. Um, you know, I, I think it's, there again, we, not smart business people, there wasn't really a path to how we got where we are. Um, we haven't really tried to fill holes in the portfolio. Um, the one exception may be um, there was a, a distinct period where I remember I needed to get something from Southern Italy. Um, just my palate was so biased towards the North. Um, I kind of didn't invest the time in it. Um, and so I do remember there was about a year where I was just looking and looking and looking um, for something because people were calling me and saying, look, you know, I really like your wines. Send me a case of something from Sicily. Send me, you know, a Brunello. We didn't have a Brunello for a long time. Um, and we, we just didn't have anything. So Southern Italy became one of these things that I, I think it helped us. And once we got Scola Cementi from Puglia, that that helped change our access to the south of Italy and um, connect us to other people that, you know, had wines that fit what we were looking for. Um, we've always done, pretty much always done a little bit of French. Um, I think one of the milestones for us in getting people to buy more of our French wines was when we um, picked up uh, Doyar, which is a champagne producer. Sure, which got some good press too. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, Doyar has been great, but it's, it's interesting because we had French wine 
but people just knew us for the Italian wine. We didn't have as much French wine. And so there, I mean, I suppose there are different milestones along the way. I mean, I think just in general, like what got our phone ringing was a brand called Duemani, um, which was a, a Tuscan producer. Um, and you know, literally it was the fourth producer we had and, and that's when the phone started ringing. There are people that got some good scores and we started getting phone calls from some stores and, and, and that helped a lot, so. And I mean, as you get bigger, what are some of the challenges that you face as a as a very small niche distributor getting more into a a, a smaller mid sized distributor? What what are major hurdles that you have to to pass? Um, well, I, I think you know inventory is the constant battle. Um, you know, how much do you have? Do you have enough? Do you have too much? That's that's one. As you get bigger, it's harder to manage. Um, I think. Diversity of prices. Um, that thing that I told you about, I didn't worry about. You know, when we started, it was 07, so it was pre recession. Um, I don't know that we could have started our company a year and a half later the way we did. Um, I think now we're a little bit more conscious about the pricing of wines, particularly because we have other people that sell our wine. And when I, when I started, it was just me that sold the wine. That was it. And so now you have you know, six or seven people in New York that sell for us. We've got distributors in other states that sell for us. Um, I've got a couple of people who work for me in California. And so they need a different set of of tools or, or wines at different prices and in different categories to sell. And, and you have to be mindful of their needs as well. And so I think that's that's tough is like, you know, how do you make the business work for everybody that's in your company? And what is the what is the number of, of wineries that you're dealing with now? Kind of a ballpark. It's about fifty. And um, how do you feel like the Italian portfolio has grown past that addition of something from southern Italy? I mean, what what are you uh, looking at now when you look at your own portfolio of, of of what I still really associate with as a strong Italian, although you have German, Austrian, French wines, American wines. Yeah. Um, so the question is. How, how how do I see just the, it fitting in with the rest of everything else? Or? Well, when you look at the Italian portfolio you have, I mean, what are the takeaways from that for you? Because sometimes people are like, hey, I'm natural. Or, hey, you know, we work with small wineries. Or, hey, we work with medium-sized wineries. Or, hey, we focus on Tuscany. I mean, when you look at what you put together, which I think is a pretty strong Italian book, uh, how does it read for you? I and mean, what's, what's the bottom lines? Well, when I had a, a guy in Berkeley ask me, he's like, you know, why should I do business with your company? Why should I buy your Italian wines? And I think that in the category of wines that we choose, you know, I, it's not enough to just say I work with boutique wineries anymore. Everyone's going to come around and say they work with boutique wineries. And the, and the other thing, too, is I think that when I was buying, when I first started, you know, in the 90s, the, I think there was less good wine available. Mm -hmm. I think that there's good information sharing. People know what they're supposed to do in the vineyards now. They know they're supposed to keep clean wineries. Um, by the time I was, you know, wrapping up at Felidia, um, buying good wine wasn't hard. Buying interesting wine, that was that was different. Putting together an interesting wine list, that was different. Um, and so I think with our portfolio, what I always tell people, you know, it's, it's not enough for me to just say my wine's really good. Every, everyone that comes to see a good restaurant is going to have good wine in the bag. It's probably handcrafted. It's probably boutique. It's everyone's saying the same thing. So, what our wine needs to have is is something different about it. It needs to have, um, it needs to be good and handcrafted, but it also needs to express something unique about that place. And place is usually the thing that can be most particular about a wine. That's that's what can be most unique. There's only going to be so many wines from that one particular place. And so, having you know the wine have that kind of transparency, or you know, in some cases maybe it is. Not the transparency, but the uniqueness of how the winemaker chooses to vinify the wine. But there needs to be something different. There needs to be something that makes the wine stand out from every other wine that comes out of wherever it's coming from. Have the conditions in Italy itself as a country changed during the period of time that you've been working uh, as an importer? Have you seen uh, political or financial upheaval? Yeah, I mean, there, there are several conditions that I think have changed. I mean, I think that... Um, I mean, certainly the, the, the economic changes, I think that, you know, the U.S. recession hit before the one in Italy did. And you see people sort of tightening their belts a little bit more. But you also see as the U.S. comes out of it, I think you see um, new companies that are vying for um, existing brands. And so, and that's something else we've, we've seen, you know, where I get calls from my producers and say, hey, this new company called us and they said that they'll, you know, pay us up front for all the product. You know, what can you do? 
And I think that um, as you know, you have new markets, whether it's China or Russia or Brazil, those are like the really, really strong, we've got a lot of cash, or new companies in the US, um, I think that it puts uh, more pressure, you know, back on us to perform um, and do well, where that didn't exist quite so much during the recession. There weren't a lot of new people coming to the market with a lot of money in the in the depths of the U.S. recession. So it can be great when your producer gets a little fame and starts to be known for high quality, but then maybe some other uh, importer is going to circle around the wagons and try to, to try to get them from your book and put them into theirs. Yeah, I think that's always, I mean, it's always a little bit of a concern. Um, you know, there's, there's also a lot of good people out there that you don't have to worry about that with, so. And uh, uh, what is it like going from kind of New York-based to national? Was that a big change for you in terms of working on two coasts? Um, starting to be. I mean, it's 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 actually not, in terms of my time, it was, it was a big change. But in terms of what I did, it wasn't actually. So, you know, if I say I spent the first two to three years selling the wine in New York, um, you know, the next two to three years in that sequence have been me doing the same thing, just in different markets. Um, I think that the the part that's interesting, if I look at it over the course of the evolution of the business is, again, going back to the recession, nobody in Illinois wanted to take on a brand new portfolio in 2009. Um, now there are people who are interested in, in doing that. Um, and I think also, you know, I don't know if it was just the recession or if it was the maturity of our company. You know, people didn't know who we were or what we stood for, or maybe it was, you know, maybe that maturity of the company was less about our identity and more about the number of offerings we could you know, give to people. And do you see different markets being drawn to different parts of your book? Like there's some, some places go more for Italy and other people go for more for California. Or... Yeah. Although I don't know, I don't know if I think of it as being as regionally specific as much as it is stylistic. I um, see. So we'll sell different things much faster in Florida and Texas than we do in San Francisco. Um, so yeah, the, in North Carolina, you know, you have certain markets that are more price sensitive. You know, you get a little, you don't get a little, you get a lot skewed in New York about what things cost. And you told me once that one of the things that you feel when you evaluate wines from different regions is that if you kind of immerse yourself into it, your palate changes its receptors to it. Like you get more aware of the quality of a, a region the more you taste of it, like while you're doing it. And I wonder, I thought that was really interesting. Maybe you could hit on that a bit in terms of when you go on your buying trips, what happens? Well, I think... Um... And I think the well, way we were taught, we were talking about, you know, whether or not I, you know, I told you, I think when I moved to Florida, I didn't think I liked Italian white wine. Mm -hmm. I just thought it, it can, it's not complex. It's not interesting. Um, there's probably someone that's listening to this going, yeah, he's right. It's not, but um, I've changed my mind about that substantially. Um, I think that the more you taste of it, the more your, your palate will adjust, but I think it happens relatively quickly. I don't think it's um, something that takes years to hone your palate into Italian white wine. And what I've told people, and they've told me they don't like Italian white wine or they don't like Chianti, is just to taste several of them for two weeks. Don't, you know, you don't even have to do it for two weeks, for a week. Don't don't go do some California and then come back to Chianti and then do some French and come back to Chianti. Do just Chianti for a week and see if you don't start to like it a little bit more. And I found that was true because when I would go to California, while I don't drink a lot of California wine at home particularly, when I would go out there, I'd get there the first day and, you know, I, I didn't really like anything I was drinking. You know, I, it just wasn't stylistically for me. Um, and by the time I would leave California at the end of the week, I was finding lots and lots more wines that I really, really liked. And, you know, I don't think that I was getting better access to wines. I don't think that miraculously at the end of my trip, people were serving me better wine. I think that my palate was adjusting and I was, you know, probably becoming a little bit more tolerant of the alcohol, maybe of the oak. And I was probably, you know, finding more nuance in the wines as I was tasting them more. And I, I, I think that's it. I think anything that you want to learn about in wine, if you can um, sort of isolate yourself and, and focus on that for a little bit of time, you, you'll get better at tasting it. And just to, to talk about different areas and tasting through, I mean, you, you mentioned how different regions support different wines, but have restaurant cultures changed a little bit city to city across the United States? When you take a travel, are you seeing uh, new and different things in different areas that maybe you wouldn't have expected if you hadn't visited recently? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that, I mean, I grew up in Seattle, and so um, we've been working in Seattle for about a year and a half and I think the restaurant scene in Seattle today is far superior to what it had been. Um, I think 
I think one of the things that's been great for our company is that we did start with Italian wine because, as you know, the growth of Italian wine as a, uh, a segment in the market has has boomed. And it was interesting. Seattle had always been a, a town that focused on Northwest wine and, and French wine. And I would say that was true of the cuisine as well. And if you um, go out to Seattle now, you see a lot more Italian um, out there. I think if you go to San Francisco, I think San Francisco right now is, and I'm very loyal to the New York restaurant scene, but the, the San Francisco restaurant scene is, is very, very exciting. I think they have have really, the, the concept of farm to table has reached sort of this this peak where it's it's so tangible. I mean, I was at A16 the other day while they were, you know, I, I just don't think you could butcher a pig like on the other side of the bar in New York. I just don't, I don't know if you can do it legally, but I don't know if it would be put up with. And it's, um, I think there's something very exciting about how fresh the product is. You know, when I was at Felidia, um, the chef and I used to talk about things and we'd try a dish and sometimes I'd say, oh, it's almost as good, but not quite as good as it is in, in Italy. And he'd say, well, it's because I don't have the product. And that's the thing California has is they've got some great product um, that's right there. And, and San Francisco's great. Um, people have badmouthed LA for a long time. I myself included. Um, I think five years ago, dining in LA was pretty dismal. And I think there's some really exciting things happening. I think LA might be the most dynamic market. I think the change that's happening there is happening so fast. So you mentioned a little bit of uh, the move away from uh, what was the classic French market into the Italian market. How have some of the other regions that you uh, that you sell in the book uh, benefited from that? I noticed you know, you've developed your Austrian side and, and, and even your California side. What's, what's going on in different parts in terms of the wine side? Um, well, California is easier for me to talk about because I, I see such a huge change there. Um, Austria is new to us, um, and I don't know what's been changing in Austria as much. And I've, um, although I'm really excited about the producers we were working with, um, in California, um, I'll tell you, we we had a hard time getting into California. We we thought we needed to. We thought it'd be good for the company. Um, it didn't fit with this, you know, sort of high acid, you know, low oak. That that wasn't what California was known for. And um, there's a there's a winery called Massacon um, that has been tremendous for us. Not not just in terms of sales, but because of I think sort of. Um, what they've brought to us in terms of reputation and and more importantly, what wineries have it's led to. I see. Um, so you've got a guy who's who's based in Napa Valley making wine for Larkney, which is big California Cabernets, um, but really likes to drink white wine. And his family was Italian and he was really inspired by Friulian wines. So he wanted to do a white blend like they do in Friuli. So he did one with Ribola and Tokai and uh, Chardonnay. Um, and then, um, he does, you know, he does these wines that come out of Napa Valley and they're coming in at 12.5, 12.8% alcohol. Um, they're refreshing. Um, and that was, that was huge for us. When we got that brand, it led to other people who are making really small projects, just probably they're not, not making money on them. They're probably not making a lot of money for sure. Um, but they're doing something that they're very passionate about and they can do it for that reason. They, they maybe can't do it for the market. Um, you know, maybe they're, Full-time employers don't want that, but um, I think you're seeing more and more uh, producers back off of oak and are going for a little bit of higher acid, um, really pronounced aromatics. Uh, California is exciting. I think there's there's definitely a change. I mean, everything in the wine industry is is trends, right? You know, I remember you know, when you and I were getting started, oaky California Chardonnay was really popular. Really popular, like we're, everywhere. Yeah, and 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 then then it wasn't just that. People didn't want Oki Chardonnay. They just didn't want Chardonnay anymore. And Merlot was really popular, and then the movie came out, and you know things things changed. Right now, I think the trend is is fortunately for us is is on this sort of lighter is is also interesting and good. Have the trends gotten shorter? Like it seems like it took so long for the Merlot trend to turn. It seems like it took so long for the oaky chardonnay to turn has it gotten to be a shorter window when things really hit i was thinking about that the other day i i, I don't know I was, I was wondering if it's just that we're that we're at the you know sort of the the pivot point of when it's happening and that's why it seems shorter i don't know if it's i don't know if it's social media um i think it, it certainly could be part of it you know i i think you have you know we we focus on what we focus on because of my experience in restaurants i think yeah think that's how our portfolio was built and um 
I certainly wasn't the only person in restaurants talking about why high acid is good in your wine. Um, lots of sommeliers were talking about that. Um, it wasn't until I feel like the last three years where all of a sudden you start to have people, you know, holding forums on finding balance in wine and focusing on acidity. And I don't know if that's just the pivot point or if it's just that access to all these sommeliers via Facebook, Twitter, podcasts is is more accessible and people are hearing what it is that sommeliers like. I, I, think, I think that's probably part of it. And were there trends along the way that sort of surprised you? Were you kind of taken by surprise uh, at the reception of, of things that have happened in the last couple of years? <laughs> um, every now and then there, there's some where I, you know, whatever it's, you don't, you don't agree with what everyone else is saying. Sure. There's, there's a couple of those here and there. Is it orange wine? Is that what you're trying to tell me? No. It's, I mean, <laughs> as you know, we have a couple of orange wines in the portfolio. Um, I think, I do think that there are, um, well, I mean, two of them I can think of quickly. I think that sometimes the, the concept of natural wine can be pushed to the point of unenjoyable wine. I still think bad wine is is bad. Um, I think that some people are arguing whether or not, you know, our understanding of what good and bad is should be considered. Um, and, and this one you'll probably get a kick out because I'm the only one who feels this way. That I, I, don't, I haven't talked with anyone who agrees with me about this, so I'll just throw myself under the bus here. But I've uh, I've not been on the... Etna kick at all. Oh, okay, okay. I, uh, well, you said you didn't get into it, you know, when it was people were asking for you. So. Yeah, no, they, I mean, we get, people ask me to, you know, if we will get something from Etna. And I think part of it was I just had so many people, particularly sort of in its big boom, serve me. And I actually like the whites more than I do the reds from there. But the, you know, people serve me, you know, Etna wine. And they say, oh, I think you really like this. It's, it's you know, it's going to be right up your alley. And it's, it's so Burgundian-like. And I just... Every time I that that phrase in particular would drive me nuts because I it doesn't taste anything like burgundy to me. So no, I well I hear you on that. I mean, there's also seems to be a different aging curve. Like uh, I think the Norello Mescalese tastes like uh, Pinot Noir from Burgundy thing. Um, it might help sell wine, but I don't think it helps you understand it because it seems like the wines age differently and the fruits different. So yeah, I suppose it's a shortcut for saying that it's not Brunello. Yeah, like it's a shortcut for saying try this, and it's not high alcohol Nero d'Avola from right. from Sicily. You know what I mean? Because right. Sicily had such a huge big fruit problem. It would be like selling something from the Barossa that was, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, the, the, the south of Italy has been complicated. I mean, what was that like moving into that uh, supplier market for you? Did you have to work out of other ports? I mean, like functionally, did you? That, that's really interesting. I mean, I mean, we really didn't know... Anything. I, I have to say, you know, this is, I didn't start the business by myself. Um, Laura Super uh, is my business partner. And that's, that's probably, that's probably a whole other hour for you if you ever wanted. She, um, she didn't come from a wine background at all. Um, so never mind whether she was a sommelier or a buyer in a store. Um, she knew nothing about, but she, she took on the role of all the logistics, which was key. I think if, if I look back at, you know, what's helped us to succeed you know, a couple of things. One is my wife paid the rent for two years while I made no money. And the second is that Laura Super figured out from scratch how to post wines, how to find different carriers to get wines in and out of different ports. You know, it's, you know, the, the first time, you know, you get a phone call and you find out that the wine you've been desperately waiting on didn't get picked up because um, it was it was a, a boat that's run by... by um, Muslims, they didn't want to pick up the wine. You know, who's going to deal with the stuff? And Laura Super was was able to kind of successfully figure out how to do all that. And that allowed me to do, you know, choose the wineries, set the pricing, and then go out and just sell. Um, so, you know, getting wine out of different ports and getting it on boats and figuring out what the wait time is and, and all of that was, uh, it was certainly not easy, but fortunately I didn't have to do it. In terms of the finding wine part, did you find that, as you mentioned for some of the producers earlier, that when you found one person on a location, that person could kind of lead you into their friends and the people whose wines that they liked? And so it was kind of like as soon as you get that that one person, then the network really can bloom from there. I mean, that's what happened with us in California. Um, I think it's part of what happened for us in Austria. You know, Italy was much slower. Things, things happen faster now, I think, because partially we can react faster, but it more people know us now, which is nice. So 
Um, but when we started, yeah, that was that was sort of it. You know, I mean, we were a little bit more spread out. Um, and so whether it was not whether or not they were recommending us to one of their neighbors, or they were going to the winery and saying, "Hey, I know you're working in the U.S. Who are you working with? Do you like them?" Yeah, that's it's I think common. I think it's pretty standard networking in a lot of businesses. Did you find in the old world that you almost have to have that personal recommendation, otherwise they don't sign with you? Like that, it's not just a financial books transaction, but it's also kind of like, hey, my friend works with them and he's okay with them, so I'm going to go with them. Or, well, I mean, there are definitely people who've you know been interested in working with us, and I've you know, basically say, listen, you know, how about how about a character reference, or you know, let me or, or a business reference, you know, and you you direct them to other wineries and say, hey, you know, how do you like AI selections? You know, how are they working? And uh, yeah, no, it's there have been certain people that that's what we've had to do to bring them on, and. Yeah, it's great. And where do you see the the restaurant market in the U.S. moving? I mean, uh, here we are. We're both based in New York. Uh, where do you see things happening in terms of, of the restaurant side, wine side? What changes have you seen recently, and where do you see it heading? Um, New York specifically, I feel like um, some of the some of the people who uh, are really instrumental in making the, the restaurant scene here what it is, I feel like a lot of those restaurants have turned into groups. Oh, okay. Or into, or if they already were groups, they're bigger groups, you know. So, um, and I think that in particular, when you have wine directors, you know, there's there's a lot for them to manage. Their time isn't that great. It's um, probably not as easy. You know, when when I was at Flitty, I think we bought from fifty different distributors. I don't think it's as easy to do that if you're managing a group. Um, maybe it is. I'm not doing it. So, but um, you know, I, I, that's that's one way I see New York developing Manhattan, particularly. Brooklyn's a little bit different. Brooklyn, I I was really frustrated with when I first started because I think that they were doing um, something with their food that they weren't doing with their wine list. What do you uh, mean by that? Um, I think that they were insisting on, you know, kind of that San Francisco model, like pushing towards more farm-to-table stuff. And um, there was a little bit more, I don't know if there was more creativity, but there was... Um, yeah, maybe, maybe maybe more creativity. There were there were less sort of set expectations um, of the restaurants that you went into in, in Brooklyn, um, but the the wine lists were still built around the idea that that the customers only wanted to pay X amount. That they would pay more for some really exciting dish that was fresh, and you would sell it as as because it's local farmed, it's going to be better. But that somehow didn't translate to the wine list, um, and people, even if it were a better wine or it were you know, it was made by a, an artisanal producer. There was there this resistance to adding those wines to the list, and I don't necessarily think that that's who their consumer was. I think their consumer would have bought better wine. I think that's changing pretty quickly right now in Brooklyn. Um, I think that finally you're starting to see the wine list um, reach the same level of quality that the food in Brooklyn is. Are I there particular people that you see think are leading that charge? Um, I, I think one of, I don't know if you've ever been out there. I've only eaten there, I guess, twice. But I think the Vinegar Hill wine list is terrific. I mean, I, I it's one of the wine lists I, you know, I sit down and I think, I have no idea what I'm going to order. There's there's too many good choices here. Um, I think that, um, you know, I think if you guys, I just had dinner at uh, Buttermilk Channel and they do um, all domestic, but I think that they're they're doing some some really interesting things. They're finding some local people, whether it's Finger Lakes, and then they're also doing some you know really interesting things out of California that they're finding. Um, and there's there's lots of great stuff in Brooklyn. I mean, it's sort of there's there's a lot of really exciting developments there. I think. So you've been around a lot of different bottles of wine, a lot of different times, different places. What what is a special moment? Uh, what is a special drinking story for you that that you've kept all these years? A special, in in terms of what's like, your what's your favorite drinking story? My favorite drinking story? Yeah. Oh um, well, if it, if it really were that good, I, I might not remember it. Um, favorite drinking story? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I I know. I mean, I think maybe one of you know, when I what I think maybe favorite drinking times is, is, is easier. Um, when somewhere during my time at Flidia, we started a, um, you know, a sommelier tasting group. Um, it was Aaron Van Rock, James Endicott, a uh, guy who worked for a couple guys who worked for me, um, Lyle Fass. Oh, okay. Um, can't remember who else was in David Sterno. Oh, Flinder. sure. Um, 
And we would meet on Tuesday nights at PJ Clark's at midnight. We'd all get off work and we'd go there at midnight and we'd, you know, taste everything blind and we'd have a theme. We'd ex- experiment with different ways to to do it. But th- those were those were great drinking nights. You know, they were, we would work at trying to understand regions and take something away from it. Um, you know, by 1.30, we'd take the, the foil off the bottles and then we would have burgers and drink and um but there were there were definitely you know some great bottles of wines that showed up those nights and and really that experience was was something that went on for a couple of years it was a really great experience i remember once von rock brought um he somehow had access to bocastel cellars and got wine directly from the cellars and i think he brought something like 12 vintages and uh james indicott blinded all 12 correctly oh really wow yeah amazing yeah so i mean i don't know if it's hard to say i mean there's a lot you know there's a lot of nights that we spend drinking there's a lot of good stories that um you know that we've had so i mean there's some of them are just ridiculous especially in the restaurants you drink things that you never you know we've had things that we really can't afford to drink um so those stories are could happen any night of the week. I feel like we came full circle on what you first described in terms of sharing the wine with other people. And here here it's the the same theme again. Thank you so much, David. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate you being on the show. David Weitzenhofer of AI Selections, an importer based in New York, but working nationally. Thanks again. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.